You're listening to 91.7 FM, WSUW, in Whitewater, Wisconsin. WSUW 91.7 FM, The Edge in Whitewater, Wisconsin. This is Rashkin Report, and I'm your host, Yuri Rashkin. I'm excited to welcome to the program today a visiting fellow at uh, University of Southern California, uh, Annenberg School, and uh, um, many other things which we will discuss, uh, Vasily Gatov. Uh, Vasily, welcome to the program. Hi, nice to see you. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, um, what what uh, you're you're how are you looking at all the events that we're uh, here experiencing? We have consulates that are being closed. Uh, it seems like the relationship between uh, Russia and the United States is uh, not moving in a good direction. And here you are um, in in actually Massachusetts. I understand joining us via Skype. Um, how are you viewing um, what what is going on? Um, well, I'm, uh, I would, I would put it in two different dimensions or perspectives. The first one is a general trend between in Russian American relations, which, uh, develops for last probably 10 years, uh, which is, uh, kind of limiting the relations to the most pragmatic, most uh, restricted uh, uh, levels, uh, formal, diplomatic, uh, with much less extensions than, than, than it was in, uh, let's say, 90s or early um, be- beginning of the century, uh, when the United States was conducting a lot of extra diplomatic activities in Russia, like USAID, uh, like IREX, uh, like American councils, uh, exchanges, cultural, uh, cu- cultural contacts, um, uh, libraries, uh, publications that uh, were licensed to be published in, in, in Russia from American from American publishers. Right now you have Forbes in Russia. You have several publications of, that are also have like international. Well, well- yeah, well, they still have, of course, I mean, there is a cosmopolitan Forbes. I mean, there's still capitalism, right? Yeah, there's still capitalism in Russia. But on the formal level, on the state-to-state relations, the relations are really, really constrained. I mean, we have, uh, uh, and it actually it was uh, initial, sort of both sides. It was like a mutual uh, restriction because, uh, like, for example, military communication military military cooperation uh has been declining uh since uh 2009 when Russia and the United States started to kind of seriously brawl uh around um, uh missile defense in Europe and and final extension of NATO uh so far Russia and the United States have uh, continued their cooperation in space, uh, like in the National Space Station, Russian launches to space station. But Russia 
persistently kind of blackmailed United States saying that we can stop this any day and you don't have uh, sort of you, you don't you don't have reliable channel of uh, delivery of cosmonauts to International Space Station, which is true. Uh, and and, uh, and so on and so forth. I mean, uh, Russia has expelled American um, NGOs, then it expelled American government organizations that have been working like USAID or IRX. Uh, and, uh, and currently, I mean, the, the, the informal or public diplomacy level of, of relationship between Russia and the United States are prob- is probably at the lowest level since uh, 1958, I would even even say it's, it was it was better during the height of the Cold War. I, I was, uh, is is this the new Cold War? Is it, what is that? What are we calling this? Uh, no, I uh, I would say I would say it's not a Cold War at all because Cold War was an ideological conflict, and Cold War was a conflict in which uh, all the sides uh, have been raising stakes. Uh, current conflict is not about ideology at all, because Russia is unideological, non-ideological. Like, like, I mean, I've, I've published, I've published uh, uh, an essay several couple of years ago uh, offering a term negation ideology. That, 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 that Russian ideology is ideology of negation. I mean, we just negate everything. I mean, ideology... Reject everything. Not even reject. We, we put it in the negative... In the negative, I mean, it's like uh, a square from minus one. Uh, therefore, everything can become an adversary, everything and everybody, and everything and everything, everybody can be friend tomorrow without any restrictions. Because like, tactics, Russia, like Russia and Turkey, they, Russia, they, they Russia, got a falling out, then they then they're friends again now. Yeah, Russia, Russia and Turkey, perfect, perfect example of. Um, uh, multi-year brawl with Norway uh, around like two square kilometers of disputed land on the border. And then when Norway supported Russian position in some Arctic uh, debates with the United States and Canada, Norway immediately became the best friend. Uh, and uh, so, so I mean, Russia, Russia is extremely tactical in that. Uh, and... Um, uh, How do people even function in this setting when you have the ideology of negation? Um, what, what do people do with this? How do people that, survive that, in the system? That's an interesting question. People, people, people really suffer that because, uh, especially, it's difficult when you work for the government because you don't have a stable kind of a, like it was in Soviet time, the party line. The party line could could be fluid sometime when, when party try to find its position in regard to the communist party in regard to some changes in the global events or some changes in local politics. Uh, but in general, you still have like a Marxist dogma uh, of class struggle, uh, sort of proletarians of all countries unite and blah, blah, blah. And you can, you you can have probably- to dress everything in those clothes. Yeah, uh, yeah, and and you can and you can do nothing but just pronounce good slogans. Uh, with with Putin's negation ideology, you have to be extremely sa- sensitive and persistently kind of try to predict what Vladimir Vladimirovich will say tomorrow. Uh, and people and people really kind of become more 
royalists and the king, uh, trying to exaggerate what Putin is saying. Let's say Putin is probably critical on America and dislikes America, but people around Putin who try to gain his favor, they hate America or they pretend they hate America. Or I mean, they, 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 they actually. Well, that, that's why you have, I think, uh, you know, Russian Orthodox Communist Party, <laughs> because they're, they're trying, you know, they're combining the what seemed like uncombined something that you couldn't bring together. But now well, be, you have be, Russian be, Orthodox be, Communists. Be, be, being honest, Russia is not that retard. We even have mental clinics. Uh, so I mean, hey. in in politics, Russian Communist Party is a mental clinic. Um, so, so just, just, just don't, don't take it seriously. I mean, um, but yet, I mean, as a brand, it is out there, and it's you. Would, it's just seems like it would be hard to put Nike and Adidas together, and then that there they are. Um, well, this, that that that's a very separate thing to discuss. I mean, Indeed. if you want, if you if you want, we can do it sometime, but but not not in this context. So, coming back to your question about Russian American relations. On the other side, United States, uh, uh, who are definitely a part in this relations, have a very strange position because uh, in the end of Obama administration, due to really sort of uncomfortable choice of American people that brought Trump to the White House, a, a, a vast majority of liberals have adopted this narrative of Russian incursion into America, meddling into American domestic relations, uh, which possibly is true. I mean, I'm not trying to argue there was no hacking or there was no uh, direct attempt to release compromising material on Clinton or DNC. Uh, that all had happened, like like fake news participation, uh, uh, sway of opinions uh, in order to sort of mm, propagate more populist and more isolationist America. That is all true. This is not this is not a, 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 a subject of big discussion. But the problem is that America, as a political system, uh, is at the height of the conflict between its global role as the country that created globalization, that created global market, that created global order, and very conservative Protestant society that wants to live uh, on a foundation of um, the valleys uh, emerging from the civil war resolution. What is it called? Reconciliation, yeah? Uh, and, and an important thing is that when, 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 when you analyze the whole platform, not, the, not, not only Trump awkward wording or, or whatever, but the whole platform of, uh, of Trumpism, you understand that people, that people want America to return to sort of simpler itself. I mean, the great America is simpler America. But it's almost like instead of some, being somebody who is running the market, America may be becoming somebody who is a customer in the market and just complains about the quality of the market. Uh, you, can, you can put it that way. But, but, but more important is that um, 
once again, it could be a different conversation, but you know. Yeah, yeah, you know, no, but it's very, it's very, it's very, it's very straightforward. I mean, Obama's America uh, has primarily addresses a very complex role in globe global politics. I mean, building new partnerships, a, a sort of uh, deterring Russian aggression, dealing with China, uh, sort of uh, keeping keeping complex relations with European partners, uh, sort of sustaining sustaining economy that uh, has um, problems with businesses emigrating to other countries and so on. I mean, the new platform which came, that came against Obama was make things simpler. I mean, I want to know about Wisconsin. I don't want to know about Ghana, Russia, uh, what is the, 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 the when I, uh, um, I can't remember the I man was a good joke about that. I mean, make make things happen in my town. Right, but and, the problem is, is when this whole show is brought to you by government of Ghana, uh, you know, then it's like, well, that that's not good. Yeah, and then and then and then and then Russia don't comes. Don't look at Ghana. Say, don't look at the man behind the curtain. Yeah. And then and then, and then and then Russia comes in and and Russia is, and I think I mean all of us know that the the the, the integral quality of most Protestant societies mm-hmm. and America is Protestant society right. is is that they need two enemies spiritual and actual. This is one of the basic principles. I mean, spiritual enemies are those who do not believe in your in 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 Protestant. Well, Protestant theology, and factual is those who try to derive us from from our belief. And Russia is an actual enemy. Are, are deprived of our belief, so, so no, no, believe so something. It, Go ahead. No, 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 no. I mean, our belief produces our way of living. So the spiritual enemy attacks beliefs. Factual enemy attacks our way of living. This is Calvin's. I mean, since Calvin, this is something that that is foundational. Uh, and uh, I just like to take a second and, and remind listeners that you're listening to WSU W91.7 FM, The Edge in Whitewater, Wisconsin. This is Rashkin Report, and I'm your host, Yuri Rashkin. Um, I'm excited to be engaged in a deep conversation with a visiting fellow at the University of Southern California, political uh, school of uh, Annenberg School, and uh, many other things I keep saying, but there's a uh, you're on the board of directors of uh, Open Russia, uh, which is a uh, Mikhail Khodorkovsky's organization, and uh, media uh, analytic is uh, analyst really is a uh, in this language uh, is uh, your specialties as well. So, as as we see um, the situation between Russia and United States, uh, kind of uh, the, the, I don't know, it, the lights are not going out; their lights are dimming. Um, and and everybody, you know, do you, do you feel that this can stop at some point? Uh, yeah, I'm 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 pretty much sure uh, we we are very close to a bottom of the situation. There are not much steps in diplom- diplomatic protocol that Russia and the United States can um, sort of can can exploit to go further down in their relationships. I mean. Uh, unlikely by any by any mean that, that Russia and the United States will cease diplomatic relations. Uh, unlikely that 
even the level of these relations would be degraded. Uh, so most of, most of the remaining steps would uh, either be non-diplomatic, uh, kind of economic or whatever, uh, or... Not military. No, not military at all. I mean, there is fortunately no reason to be afraid uh, of nuclear war. I don't, I don't think that... I mean, Putin is probably would, not... Would it really but, prove to the world that Putin is the man? Or Trump sorry? is the man? Would it really, would it really you know, show who is the winner here? And, uh, you know, I, I don't know. No, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't think it's a, it's a win-lose situation. Uh, the world is more complex. The, uh, the system of um, checks and counterbalances in the global politics and actually global war prevention uh, is much more uh, advanced than it was like 100 years ago, even 50 years ago. It's not only about the red line between Moscow and Kremlin, but it's also because uh, like 30 years ago, Soviet Union and the United States could launch nuclear war between, between themselves without consulting anybody else. I mean, today, for Russia, starting a nuclear war with the United States is much less interesting unless China stands on their side. And similar for the United States. I mean, uh, of course, I mean, existential, existential threats are existential threats. But uh, we know much more about uh, how world is going to survive. And therefore, uh, the change in the attitude is that we, we harm, we make a huge harm with a nuclear war, uh, but, but they still will leave after that. So uh, I, I don't think that I mean, this nightmares, I mean, the, the scenarios of, uh, of doom are, are possible at all. Uh, what is possible and what is becoming more and more possible is that uh, sort of powers, I mean, not superpowers, but powers, uh, may collide in minor conflicts. That is one of the possibilities that uh, today, today is... Are you, are you speaking about like proxy wars? Like proxy war in, in Syria to some extent? Yeah, proxy war... Uh, wars are, are very, very, I mean, well, they, they, they existing. I mean, uh, like, uh, siding with particular forces in the civil wars, like in Afghanistan. Uh, and nobody knows what is going to happen in Pakistan. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 uh, Central Asia is not absolutely stable region. So, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, options for sort of military conflicts, but none of them arise to kind of existential war that will seize existence of humankind. Uh, and I don't think that it's technically possible because um, although, although Russia and the United States speak a lot about upgrading their nuclear arsenals and so on, uh, technically both countries are absolutely uh, overloaded with the cost of maintaining this. And when Obama, and actually Putin, suggested another round of INF or START treaties, that, that was mostly logical, because it's just 
bloody expensive. I mean, uh, uh, we we don't know exactly how much how many much how much money Russia spends on their on maintaining and sort of keeping safe their 1,400 nukes. But the United States spends about 70 billion dollars a year just to maintain them, just to have them. Expensive. <coughs> it's very security comes at a price. Yeah. All right. No, no. I mean, I'm not speaking about military part. It's only nuclear energy part. Oh, that's that's uh, Rick Perry. We're in good hands there. Okay. Um, let's see. So once again, you're listening to WSUW 91.7 FM. Uh, this is Rashkin Report. I'm Yuri Rashkin. I'm excited to be speaking today with USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism visiting fellow Vasily Gazov. Um, Vasily, what I'd like to kind of, um, the, the last area that I wanted to cover today uh, with you is the future of Russian language media in, in kind of a, um, in a sense of almost like a five-year view. Um, when you look at what's going on in Russia today, as, the, the, as they say, uh, bolts are being tightened, screws are being tightened, uh, all the time, uh, is, and, and especially as the pressure from the West may be at an ever-declining state. Uh, What does the future holds for Russian language media, do you feel? Uh, Well, Russian language media uh, lives. I mean, this is not a walking dead. It's not a zombie. Uh, it's It's not a corpse. I mean, you still have and numerous uh, media outlets that produce quite quality journalism, uh, responsible and uh, impartial news. You still have news agencies that uh, verify stories and uh, serve the industry. Uh, what you don't have, you, you don't have public media. You don't have media serving the interest of public, uh, and and uh, television. Most of large radio network radio companies, uh, less newspapers, are under the state control, and they're not even censored. They just they just directed what to do. I mean there are. I mean, censors, censors in, in kind of a formal form is, are people who read articles or watch stories for TV before they're being aired. No, I mean, you don't have people like this in Russia. I mean, this is self-censorship. Journalists and editors just don't But does it make- mean that instead of having two censors sitting in the room next door that are reading everything that comes out, you have a million censors uh, who are all reading this and can complain about it? Yeah, yeah. In a way, I mean, I just, uh, I mean, I, I've started my journey. But I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a tightening of the situations. It's getting. Uh, well, Yuri, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will share with you my anecdote from 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 the very beginning of Please my jur- journalistic career. I mean, I I came to Moscow City newspaper in 1985. It was like last year of the well, like last two years of full blown Soviet censorship. And I was sent uh, under editorial assignment to write about some, uh, well, it was called youth development in uh, a city of Zelenograd, 
uh, it's, it's a suburb of Moscow, uh, which in Soviet time was kind of a, a Russian, a Soviet Silicon Valley when they tried to replicate American uh, computer industry. And therefore, most of the organizations, companies, uh, factories, uh, there were classified. They were not, they were not, uh, uh, were not public. They, they were too cool to be shown to, to people? Yes. And I, and I wrote, I mean, I, I really loved the city because it was, it was, it was well organized, as we call it now, I mean, a result of the good gentrification efforts. I mean, um, early hipsters were walking over the street, nice cafes, some, uh, some public spaces. It was modern built city. And I came back and wrote a story praising great factories. Uh, I don't remember avant-garde, this one, this one, this one, uh, that, uh, made the city so great and good for young, youngsters. It was Moskowski Komsomol. It's the youth newspaper. And then a few minutes ago, uh, later after, after I put my story on, uh, to, to the editor, I'm called to censor's room. And the censor, he, he doesn't even speak to me. He opens to me a book. And the book is headline. I mean, the, the, the name of the book is the list of the companies and organizations that are allowed to be mentioned in the open press. And then he opens it on the, on the, on the Z letter for Zelenograd. And there's one company for the city of 350,000 people living in there. And you would never, never, never realize what this company is about. I don't know. It makes shoes. Yeah. Yeah. No. Buttons. Buttons. Krukovskaya Pugovichnaya Fabrika. And and what's the and that's the only thing you can talk about? Or you yeah, can... yeah, yeah. Really. All the all the others. I mean, huge silicon factories that produce silicon platters. I mean electronic Fab, uh, electronic producers, a huge university that teaches people with radio physics and electronics. I mean, uh, a number of uh, a number of uh, factories that produce aluminium parts and so on that needed for computer bodies and so on. Nothing of that is allowed. This is censorship. When we speak about modern Russia. And, and the future Russia, which you asked about five years, I mean, there will be no censors in the newsrooms in Russia. There'll be no people asking, why are you writing about Putin? We are not allowed to write about Putin, or we're not allowed to write about America, or we're not allowed to write about this factory. Uh, in, in, in this regard... They're just not that organized? Uh, no, I mean, this is, this is, this is just, just unnecessary. Because... Uh, because when you have someone like Putin, who is very reactive politician, who explicitly demonstrates his, uh, especially his anger, uh, actually kills people because of anger, like Alexander Litvinenko in London or Anna Politkovska, I mean, the famous Russian investigative reporter and so on, just because he dislikes, I mean, People thinks he dislikes this. Um, so journalists are just scared. I mean, they're just scared. They know. I mean, that sometimes you can you can you can write about something. It's like you step onto on the landmine, 
and this landmine can kill you, can send you to jail, can send you to exile, can, can, can be dangerous for your publication, can be dangerous for owner of the publication who pays you the salary. Mm. And you don't even have a button factory that you know you can write about. Yeah, yeah, and you don't have a button factory. I mean, sometimes even if you write only about button factory, it could happen that Putin dislikes, I mean, or somebody around Putin dislikes writing about this button factory. Um, for zippers, you know. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, the very good example is, I mean, uh, it's a good part of the fake news so- sort of story. Uh, one of the... <laughs> Well, let's call it discoveries of the modern Russian ru- ru- Russian media is that uh, Russia can uh, effectively manage digital and social media space with the armies of bots and fake accounts. Um, my friend Adrian Chen published a great story, and he received—I don't remember—no, he didn't get a Pulitzer, but many other. Um, uh, rewards in journalism for his article, The Agency, in the New York, uh, in the New York magazine, uh, which is about this strange, non-existing, but actually existing, uh, company in the suburbs of St. Petersburg, where hundreds and hundreds of people uh, are working as uh, commentators or Twitter bots or uh, commanders for newspapers, uh, websites, or social media posts uh, that serve interests of Kremlin. I mean... And there's a fact, just, there's like a troll factory. So. Yeah, it's, it's what is called troll factory, yeah. And, and an interesting thing, I mean, just a few days ago, another friend of mine, Ben Nima, who leads um, digital forensics lab at uh, Atlantic Council, uh, had kind of discovered the mechanism of one of this uh, uh, bot, uh, bot machine's participation in alt-right debate. And some of these bots were reusable before they were blaming Navalny in Russia, who is the leading opposition figures. Then they were used to... Uh, to 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 uh, uh, agitate against uh, Hillary, then they were agitated to, to to they were used to agitate against uh, Emmanuel Macron in France, and now they're used to uh, to agitate for white supremacists after Charlottesville. Now, uh, so is this Google? It's, it's, is this Google Translate? Or are they also trained in all the languages? How does that? No, no, no. They they just they just use Google Translate, and uh, and actually these bots are writing in multiple languages, starting from Farsi. And when you say bots, there's there's human beings, right? No, they are not human beings. They're they're artificially controlled. Uh, I mean, they're they're artificial entities that are controlled by a software that. Uh, uh, just at the end of this story, uh, uh, that, re- that that is programmed to react on certain things. So uh, DFR Lab, which 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 Ben Nima has published a story which demonstrated how they work, and he put a particular hashtag into that. It happened that the operator of this botnet, who happened to be Russian, and it was easily discovered. He targeted botnet on the hashtag, and then everything what mentioned that hashtag was immediately attacked by bots in 
multiple thousands a minute. Like, have you ever seen how how, how you get like fifteen thousand retweets a minute? Wow! So that you can't get people to do that. You need machines. Yeah, you need machines. So that started to happen like in mass, and uh, I I think uh, that was a great provocation because finally it made Twitter to react. And finally, Twitter started to take down these botnets. Uh, I mean, I I, I had uh, many, well, not many, five years ago, uh, I led a project in uh, Moscow at Tria Novosti that was an early attempt to investigate commercial botnets that are used for fake, uh, not for fake news. Then they were used mostly for uh, pumping up, inflating the audience of political Twitters and Facebook accounts like uh, for Dmitry Medvedev Facebook account I mean, it was like about 55% of artificial entities who subscribed to it uh, on Facebook about 60% on Twitter uh, and because Ria Novosti was charged with prime president account then when we just wanted this entities out I mean we just didn't want them so but Twitter didn't realize, and Facebook didn't realize the problem. Today, it's more than a problem because, uh, I mean, just recently, I, I have been, I have been watching with the specific software the operation of a of a botnet on Twitter, which controls about two million accounts, two million, which can <coughs> currently mostly were used for advertising purposes. It, it kind of clicks on the advertising. But then imagine what, what it will do if it uh, starts to push uh, MAGA hashtag or um, lock her up. What, is, what, what, what was this about Clinton? Uh, that would be the only thing you'll see in your Twitter, twi- twi- Twitter feed. Vasily Garov, um, visiting fellow at USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism, Thank you so much for uh, being on Rashkin Report, and uh, I'm glad that you're joining us, not from Russia, but from actually Massachusetts uh, via Skype. Thank you for being on WSUW 91.7 FM, and uh, uh, hopefully we can continue this in the future. Thank you. See you soon. You're listening to 91.7 FM, WSUW, in Whitewater, Wisconsin. Listening to Rashkin Report. <laughs>